Welcome to the Rodcast. I'm your host, Dr. Rod. So my guest today is a public health uh, physician and clinical epidemiologist with over 20 years of experience in a number of things, including public health, epidemiology, clinical medicine, uh, working in countries around the world, advising governments on things like chronic disease, uh, prevention, health informatics. She's been the chair of the prevention for the Emirates Cardiac Society, advisor to the World Health Organization on things like non-communicable disease. She's a professor at the University Institute of Public Health and a member of the International Scientific Committee for New York University in Abu Dhabi. A short mention of all the impressive accolades. My honor to welcome Dr. Kathar Hajat. Welcome to the Rodcast. Hi, Rod. Thanks for having me on. It's great to chat to you today. So um, I'm really excited to talk about something that I think both of us are extremely passionate about. And, and I think it may be the reason we, we met in the, in the first place, um, which is chronic uh, non-communicable disease. And um, I know you've You've worked in this field for a while now, but I think you have a, a, a slightly different angle than I do in the sense that every time I talk to you, you're, you're much more up to date on the innovation and the digital and technical elements. So I'm really excited to talk to you today about some of those new trends. But um, yeah, I wanted to start off with, with chronic diseases or, or NCDs. And really get your take on, I, I think, an area that people don't really understand. And, and, and that is how much of, you know, these, these diseases are actually preventable. Because for, for many years, and a lot of people, I think, still consider, you know, heart disease, all these chronic diseases, something that is maybe they think of as inevitable, associated with old age. But in, in reality, very few people talk about, you know, how, how many of them are actually preventable. So, so what are your thoughts and, and what is the current thinking around, you know, how many are actually preventable? So um, when we talk about innovation in uh, prevention, I think what we're more accurately talking about is bringing in or recognizing that health alone can't solve this. And so we, we're trying to take a systems thinking approach and so I work with lifestyle medicine doctors as well as nutritionists, people who are experts in digital health, behavior change, neuroscience, psychology, technology, communication. So all of these aspects are needed to make any impact in prevention. And really, we haven't made uh, much of a change at all over the last few decades in um, Many of the risk factors, and quite often we're going in the in the wrong direction. Things like obesity, diabetes, and really, it's time for a new way of thinking. So, to answer your question, uh, how much uh, chronic disease is preventable? The vast majority um, people tend to think about chronic disease as being inevitable or maybe even genetic, and we know that our genes account for a very small proportion of that risk. And at least 75%, three quarters of the risk uh, is from our lifestyle and environment, uh, more for some conditions. So if we take heart disease, there are nine risk factors that account for 90% of all heart attacks, for example. And it's the usual risk factors. So cholesterol, smoking, high blood pressure, uh, high blood sugar, obesity, stress, uh, poor diet, alcohol, lack of physical activity. Cancer, again, people think as um, inevitable, but actually a large proportion of cancer risk, uh, almost half, is actually from our own lifestyles and the environment. Smoking by itself accounts for 30% of all cancer risk. And so if, if we know that 40, you know, 40% is... is uh is preventable. We know what the risk factors are. We know what has to be done. If we look at some of the trends in terms of number of 
you know, heart disease cases, diabetes, obesity, and in, in, the, in the world as a whole, you know, they seem to be going up. I know where we're failing from some aspects in terms of the, you know, how, how medicine, I think, for many years has seen prevention. There's that, there's that old, you know, tale of the patient that goes into the consultation room and, you know, the doctor asks him, well, how much do you smoke? And he says, well, 40, 40 cigarettes a day. And the doctor says, um, well, you know, if, if you keep on smoking, you're going to, you're going to have a heart attack in, in the next five years and you're going to get lung cancer and all these things. And, and that paternalistic approach we know doesn't work <laughs> at all. So, I mean, where else are we failing? Um, why, why is sort of this, you know, prevention with everything we know, not seeming to, to make a, a, a big enough dent? Well, one of the major reasons is that governments and policymakers are putting the emphasis and onus on individuals to make the change without providing the um, environment and environmental change that would be conducive to healthier lifestyles. And uh, we know that the um, environment, or it's also called the exposome, accounts for a large majority of uh, chronic disease risk. I think take things like pollution, smoking, and um, it's just very difficult for people to make the uh, healthy choice where that's not the easy choice. So there are a lot of um, behavior change techniques that can be used to actually um, uh, almost nudge people to make healthier choices, uh, but they need to be almost automatic. They need to be part of they shouldn't be active decisions that people have to make. So uh, when they go to a grocery store, for example, the healthy choices should be the majority. They should be the ones that are at eye level and therefore the most um, obvious things that they, they're going to buy. If uh, they go to a restaurant, the large majority of food served on the menu should either be healthy or uh, plant-rich uh, and, you know, at the moment we have the situation where and scenario where the opposite is true. It takes a lot of effort to seek out the healthier options. That combined with the lack of appropriate information is a recipe for, uh, for failure. Uh, excuse the pun. And um, another area where I think things are coming undone is, and, and uh, you know, let's not kind of... Uh, two ways about this. things are coming undone people's life expectancies are actually dropping because of higher burden of lifestyle perspectives for the first time and all the gains from the last two decades or so uh we're really they're being reversed right now uh so another area that's coming undone are the recommendations and information that people are receiving uh, number of steps people are supposed to take, uh, calorie counting, uh, these almost generalizations that we give to people, they are not working. So they are not taking people's life circumstances, individual um, circumstances into consideration. And um, we're not really giving people the individual recommendations that would work when people when we give people general uh, recommendations if people don't see the changes they become demotivated and there is no they're not uh, receiving better information they're not receiving personalized information that would work for them part of that is feedback and um, the feedback actually is improving when we look at wearables and um uh, how we can use the a combination of wearables and behavior change models to provide feedback and motivate people to exercise. And um, some work I've done and many others have done uh, have shown that by using near-term uh, incentives, rewards, uh, clear feedback, people actually can make these changes. Yeah, I, I guess that's relatively new. Uh, I, I just read this week a new 
uh, study that came out, which is, I was very surprised. So, you know, for, for years, we had this magic number of 10,000 steps uh, a day, which I, I haven't met anybody that knows where that number uh, came from. And I read a, a publication this week that said that, um, that actually they found that if you do 8,000 steps, at least two times a week, then that was enough to reduce your all-cause mortality. Uh, you're absolutely right. So a lot of these recommendations are not evidence-based. The 10,000 steps, the five a day for fruit and vegetables, even the calorie recommendations of 2,000 calories a day. These are very um, arbitrary. They're not necessarily backed by science. They work at a population level on the whole, if the majority of people stuck to these, then yes, at population level, we'd see a change. But there are so many individual um, circumstances and variations. And now we're beginning to get the tools to allow personal and personalised recommendations. If we take um, calories, for example, and uh, there's a lot of uh, talk now about the microbiome, and there's a lot of emerging evidence that uh, if we give uh, people the same calories, so there was a, a really neat trial called the PREDICT trial uh, by uh, Professor Tim Spector and his team. If you give people the same calories, you have different responses in terms of uh, blood glucose levels, longer term uh, changes to cholesterol, number of calories uh, that people, so if, if you give people the same calories in terms of meals, but then allow them to have snacks in between, the number of calories people will take in still varies quite a lot uh, because blood glucose spikes differ that would cause people to snack uh, if they have a blood glucose spike and therefore they would put on weight in the longer term, their cholesterol levels would be different their risk of um, chronic disease would differ. And so um, we're seeing that actually just telling people to have X number of calories without taking into account differences in their microbiome may not be ideal. And yet we can optimize that by either personalizing uh, their calorie recommendations and or uh, optimizing their microbiome in order for them to have a better response to to their diet. So I know very little about uh, microbiome. Uh, um, can you just maybe explain a bit of, of, of how, uh, from a physiological perspective, like the microbiome affects um, things like insulin? for instance? Sure, I'll try. <laughs> um, so uh, many things can affect our microbiome. And um, our diet has a huge impact on our microbiome. And insults such as alcohol and smoking would affect uh, our microbiome. Antibiotics, for example, are well known to affect our microbiome. And our microbiome actually changes uh, over periods of weeks. And so we can actually intervene to optimize our microbiome by taking in uh, prebiotics, which would optimize the environment for, uh, the, uh, for the gut bacteria. So things that are high in fiber, foods that are high in fiber, for example, would um, optimize the environment for the microbiome. We can then uh, take in uh, foods that have probiotics in them and support uh, the good bacteria. So fermented foods are very good for this. Things like kimchi, um, kefir, uh, kombucha. Um, so fermented uh, foods, uh, live bacteria in yogurts, for example, also have this effect. Um, so, so there are more of the uh, good bacteria that produce uh, short-chain fatty acids and substances such as butyrate that actually are health-promoting and um, less of the 
the bad bacteria that uh, would have a kind of deleterious effect. So it's really balancing out uh, the type of bacteria uh, mm. in the microbiome. And and those um, those adverts for uh, say supplements that uh, have an impact on microbiome are they medically founded or are they evidence based? And and do they? I mean, do they work? So. They do work. Um, there is uh, the science is still emerging for people who um, have uh, already have optimal microbiome. Then the, uh, changing your diet in itself can have a enough of a, an effect on your microbiome. So having as many varieties of um, plant-based products as possible. They say thirty species of fruit and vegetables and herbs and spices a week oh. is the optimal amount. And again, that's probably a very arbitrary um, figure. And it sounds like, a, a, you know, an excessive amount. Um, most people can't achieve that through their diet alone. And so um, there is some emerging evidence that uh, supplementation with probiotics can help. And for people who have uh, deficiencies or um, have a, either a diet that doesn't support an optimal microbiome or are currently on antibiotics. So if, if they have specific circumstances or specific needs, if they have um, problems with their gut health, then actually supplementation can help. But, but it is still an emerging science. Oh, that's super interesting. I, I, I mean, you have to excuse my curiosity and also my, my ignorance because I, I don't know much about this, but... Um, I remember years ago, a friend of mine was working in in Geneva at the Geneva University, and, and she was working on a trial um, with a fecal matter transplant. And it was, I mean, this was maybe eight years ago, and they were just exploring um, a few, a few, I think, uh, diseases like autoimmune disease in patients where no medical, you know, medical treatment in terms of any, anything that was sort of common practice for treating these conditions had worked. And they, they found that, you know, this fecal matter uh, transplant seemed to, to have a, a major impact. I mean, is that, is that similar in terms of what's being looked at in, in, in how sort of these microorganisms in, in the gut have an effect? Or is, is, is that something completely different? Um, so that uh, so the fecal uh, transplants are actually being used mostly at the moment for clostrid, clostridium infections where people need to repopulate with healthy bacteria. But there is evidence that uh, for people with obesity, fecal transplants can actually um, help uh, with uh, weight oh wow that isn't being used uh, officially as a treatment for obesity but there is emerging science that it can work so there are um, specific uh, microbiota that can help with weight and um, uh, there's one in particular called acomancia that uh, is available as a supplement that does help with blood glucose control and it's something that we would normally have uh, in our uh, gut lining. And supplementing with that, I know I have seen data that it does maintain a healthier blood glucose level and can help with weight loss. And the there are now uh, home testing kits and interventions such as uh, Zoe, um, where they would measure your microbiome and compare that to their database from their own research and then give you dietary recommendations uh, according to your microbiome, both to optimize your microbiome and which foods are more likely to give you a, a healthier diet and for you, personalized to you. And people, uh, if you look at their data, they show that people do lose weight as a result of that. So, so there's some emerging evidence for interventions, but I would say it's still very um, early days. Is this is this a stool sample that they use? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Wow. I, I guess there's so many new things in terms of personalizing treatment, whether it's yeah genetics, 
microbiome, which I, I, I wasn't aware of. I mean, I, I certainly think that it sounds like this is the way we're going in terms of, of medicine. I mean, how, how fast is this, is this happening in terms of, you know, common practice, uh, the medical side things where we really personalize treatment? Um, so when, so the field is moving pretty quickly. And part of that reason was because of, of lockdown, uh, there was more of an entrepreneurial um, uh, urge to provide things to people through digital uh, sources and, and through the through home uh, treatments rather than uh, doctor-led and clinic-led interventions. And so that really has um, led to a lot of innovation. Um, what I would say for personalization, for many years, personalization has also almost been synonymous with um, genotyping. And genotyping, whilst it has some uses, hasn't really led to any drastic change in either prevention or treatment of conditions. And um, I haven't seen anything that suggests that will change in the next few years. But there is a field of um, epigenetics that is that possibly has more uh, legs. And um, uh, that's really looking at the science of how our own lifestyles and our environment can optimise and almost switch uh, our genes on and off to have healthier lifestyles. And that impact on our genes is uh, not just for individuals, also affects their offspring. And so there is a, uh, some potential for public health uh, to u- use that as a motivator for people to change. I've always found epigenetics fascinating. I remember reading a study done by a group in Japan that was really prominent on epigenetics, and they they mentioned two two case studies. Uh, one was the Dutch famine. Um, another, the other one was the the Bosnian War, and they they um, looked at the children of women who were pregnant uh, during those those two conflicts and found that um, their predisposition and, and their incidence of diabetes was, uh, and overweight and obesity was much higher, like three times the general population. Um, and they hypothesized that women that were in these crisis situations, um, their body just went into sort of an emergency mode and something happened in, in the body that uh you know triggered this change to say hey look we're we're in survival mode we need to store as many calories as possible into fat because we might not have a meal tomorrow um and i I found that fascinating i mean what what's the sort of and that was i mean that was decades ago so what what's the sort of the thinking today in terms of epigenetics and how we move beyond sort of that research element and make it a bit more more practical so again we've almost overlooked uh different populations and how um they react and respond to different lifestyle interventions and you've just given a couple of really good examples another one is uh in the indian subcontinent where um uh we know we've known for a long time that rates of diabetes are very high in uh, Indian uh, populations, and um, we haven't really looked at why. And uh, other than looking at where fat and how fat is distributed, and we know that in Indi- Indian populations there's more of a visceral fat deposition, and uh, that has led to different recommendations for BMI, where we would say a cutoff of twenty three. Uh, is overweight for an Indian uh, uh, person rather than 25. But we haven't really looked at why. And we've regarded diabetes as just one condition, type 2 diabetes as one condition. But actually, there are different responses of the body. So there's impaired fasting glucose, there's impaired glucose tolerance. um, And we haven't really looked at different populations and the rate of, of those two different types of glucose handling and 
all of the treatments and guidelines have assumed that um, have been developed in Western populations by and large, and it's been assumed that populations around the world will all have the same type of um, diabetes causation and same response to these medications. And actually, there's some work now by the um, by a friend of mine, uh, Professor Venkat Narayan, the Rollins School of Public Health, that shows that simply isn't the case. That um, uh, we're really at the hmm. we really have a very basic understanding only at the moment of how different populations, um, uh, the types of, di- of diabetes that they have, and uh, the uh, most appropriate medications for them. And um, epigenetics plays a role because we know that these populations have had, through generations, um, cycles of food abundance and scarcity that has really led to, uh, probably has led to epigenetic effects on their glucose handling. I think Mm. things that we thought we, we knew a lot about, now we're realizing that there are many more questions that are unsolved yeah yeah i I, that that reminds me of you know years ago they i think used to call them tofies it was was thin on the outside fat on the inside (laughs) and i think it was it was based on um, a few studies where they did uh yeah i think it was mri scans and they looked at the body composition and of really thin individuals and saw that their visceral visceral fat was was just Mm-hmm. And it reminds me of Indonesia, actually. <clears throat> if you go to, um, I think it's, I think it's, is it Java, Sumatra? They have so much sugar in the diet. I've never seen anything like it. Uh, I remember my my friends would give me a cup of coffee, and they'd put six uh, tablespoons of of sugar in a black coffee. And a lot of sweet foods, you know, and and then you look at the diabetes rates, and, and they're, you know, the lowest in in the in in um in Southeast Asia. But um, yeah, I guess it points, you know, speaks exactly to what you're saying. Is there's so much we we don't understand yet. It's it's not as simple as looking at you know visceral fat and subcutaneous fat, and that and that's something I wanted to ask you. So. I think very probably very few doctors clinicians um, have the the same skill set uh, that you have where you're able to see like okay this is clinical medicine but let's look at you know digital behavioral you know all these elements that influence health in my I wanted to get your thoughts on this but in my opinion we're we're still doing a terrible job at integrating all those disciplines because um, when you look at it, you know, a lot of times, even if it's from a, from a disease perspective, you know, the cardiologist will only sit down with the cardiologist and talk about prevention, about the poly pill, about the, the endocrine, you know, endocrine conferences, endocrine related medicine will only look at, you know, their specifically behavioral scientists, but, but um I mean, what what can we do to sort of harmonize and and bring you know the digital experts and, and the rest together? And is there any example of where you've seen that happen successfully? Uh, no, <laughs> is the short <laughs> answer. Uh, nobody is doing that, and the reason is, by and large, people are still working in silos. And some work uh, that uh, I was involved in, I led with. Um, uh, Mount Sinai uh, system, health system in uh, New York and Teva um, was on looking at uh, people with more than one chronic condition and how they were being managed in the current healthcare system. And the healthcare system is not set up to manage more than one chronic condition, but one in three adults in the US has more than one chronic condition. And what happens to these individuals is that they cope with one condition, maybe they get a second condition, they still cope. By the time they get a third condition or um, they develop anxiety or depression as part of this, which is is not surprising, they, their adherence levels to their other chronic conditions goes down. Um, 
they, there's a tipping point that they reach beyond which they're no longer self-caring, they drop out of the workforce. And if we look at the reasons for this, it's rarely the conditions themselves. It's more that the health system does not support them to manage these conditions. And uh, particularly when it comes to the onset of anxiety and depression alongside chronic conditions, that's where we saw healthcare costs spiral and um, people seem to uh, no longer be able to manage their primary or secondary chronic condition. And so the whole system, the whole healthcare system needs an overhaul to uh, manage the patient more holistically rather than um, manage uh, just one system at a time. The reason that people were dropping out of the workforce actually was not because they were unwell, it's because they were quite often because they were taking so much time off for hospital appointments because they'd have to go and see the cardiologist and then the respiratory doctor and then the GP. And that wasn't conducive with them continuing uh, with their work. Um, other ways that the systems need to change. If we look at um, one of my bugbears, I guess, is that if we look at normal ranges for, say, glucose or blood pressure, they are actually for uh, conditions. So if we take blood pressure 140 over 80, that's for somebody who has hypertension. But actually, we know there's a continuum of risk for blood pressure. And so for the vast majority of, of people, we would want their blood pressure to be lowered. And um, similarly for glucose, similarly for cholesterol. And actually, when we look at the normal ranges that um, we ourselves as doctors use, but also patients are given, these are for diseases rather than for, for optimal health. We need a kind of a system level a rethink of uh, how we can support prevention both for patients but also for doctors themselves. And with, um, with prevention moving away from uh, clinics and, and doctors to uh, users and patients in their own homes, it's almost as if we have to treat uh, users as customers and clients rather than patients. I think um, healthcare providers will be forced to start uh, changing the way um, care is delivered. We're also seeing um, a demand for medicalization of prevention. I don't know if this is a good segue to talk about um, semaglutide, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, the uh, the miracle Hollywood drug. Yes, it's being uh, so we're seeing headlines such as um, "drug of the century" and uh, "is this the end for obesity?" What do you think, Rod? Um, I mean, I I've used it. I think it's I think it's 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 uh, it's amazing what it does. Um, but um, I mean, I tried it for a short while because I was very curious. Um, you know, my whole career has been built on like you know chronic disease prevention, and so um, so yeah, I really wanted to get behind the driver's seat. And uh, yeah, the effects were were unbelievable. Very very little side effects, and um, those cravings like at night that are the worst, like just absolutely disappeared. Those massive, um, yeah, hunger spikes, um, like, uh, right before meals completely disappeared. I was, I was finally able to go to the supermarket, um, with, before eating and not pull everything off, off the shelves. Um, like, like you're not supposed to do, uh, in terms of going to the supermarket hungry, but, but um, yeah, but it's I think it's it's a it's a prickly path because, you know, all the all the I guess the downside and the controversy associated with it is, first of all, it's it's crazy expensive. Um, so that's going to, you know, essentially do two things. It's going to make it accessible to only people who can 
pay it. And then from a, from a public health system, it's going to cripple, you know, the, the healthcare system if it's that expensive. But then I, I think from a, and you're much more of an expert at me at this, but from the behavioral aspect, I, I think it's also a dangerous uh, path because, you know, you've been speaking about the, the best way to get people to do stuff is to make it really easy. And so if you're doing something that easy, that's, that's a jab, you know, quick jab once a week, then you're, I fear that you're giving people license to forget about everything else in terms of all the other critical aspects of what makes somebody healthy. Um, I don't know, there's a couple of sort of brainwaves that I've, I've had, but um, I'm sure you've you've read much more and uh, about about it. Uh, well, it's great. To, I completely agree with you. We should uh, uh, try everything that we are um, uh, suggesting for our patients for sure. And so we we do try uh, to keep in keep up to date with all the new interventions and wearables, etc. Um, and great to hear your perspective. So if we look at um, obesity rates. For most countries around the world, they're still increasing, aren't they? So the US is predicted to have 50% obesity rates within the next decade. Half of the population are predicted to be obese. And um, we know that once somebody becomes obese, their likelihood of getting back to a normal weight is very low, as low as 1%. So clearly, we're not... um, succeeding with the current tools that we have so we do need something else in the arsenal and um, as you say this is an easy option for most people it works with i think the 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 trial the step trial showed 15 percent weight loss on average which is almost impossible to achieve Mm. from lifestyle intervention alone Uh, but it does i think the weight does come back again uh, once people stop using it, so it is. So, ethically, the question is: Are we prepared to put half up to half of the population on a drug treatment that is expensive, um, and they would need to stay on it uh, for their whole lives? And um, what does that do to their um, motivation to remain uh, healthy and and keep up with other lifestyle? interventions which actually have benefits over and above maintaining healthy weight so if we look at exercise there are many mental health benefits anti-aging um, uh, preventing frailty many other benefits from exercise uh, in addition to maintaining healthy weight so will it demotivate people from needing to exercise um, you um, mentioned that your diet was probably healthier on semi-glutide but I, I wonder if that would be the case for everyone um, the analogy I can draw on is for um, uh, bariatric surgery and, mm. I was um, just thinking of that <laughs> where pe- similarly people's appetites were because they were so small they would actually snack on they could eat anything so all, yeah. they, they would snack on all of their unhealthy uh, components of their diet because they could only eat a certain amount of food so it, it wasn't going to be uh, vegetables it, <laughs> it was really the kind of high fat high sugar high density foods that they were eating and and so again that that leads to the question of cardiometabolic health so will it improve people's cardiometabolic health in the long term certainly in the the um, trial that showed that semaglutide works cardiometabolic health improved but these people were also on lifestyle interventions they had lifestyle advice they were advised to reduce their calorie intake by 500 calories per day but these things don't always pan out same in real life and uh, not everyone would have access to a, a dietitian or lifestyle advice and so I think there's still a question mark what would happen to people's um uh, hmm. diet quality it would reduce the the number of calories maybe but uh, yeah. what would happen to the the quality and um 
And then well, there's was, the cost, as you mentioned. I was thinking about it for a, a slightly different reason. It it came up in my mind, the bariatric surgery, and it was it's more around. There was um, there's a hospital I used to work in, and and um, on the surgical floor, there was a lot of bariatric surgery cases, and one of the the things that was really surprised me was that um, the surgeon performing them would would not um, accept any patients unless they agreed to uh, to have some sort of psych evaluation pre and then have sort of some psychologist, psychiatrist uh, intervention throughout the beginning uh, and then after the the procedure Um, because he had found that unless you were in in a certain mindset where, as you're saying, you know, it's, it's not just a surgery and then you can eat whatever you want, but if you're doing it, first of all, if you're doing it for, for the right reasons, if importantly, your expectations are realistic and if, you know, all those things come together, then the likelihood of success, uh, long-term weight loss and less side effects was, was much, much higher. And it just got me thinking, you know, what if, we took the same approach to 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 this uh, new therapy where we said you have to it has to be accompanied by some sort of um you know mental health intervention or behavioral uh psychology or or some expert that beyond just you know the the jab um if that would make it you know more successful uh yes Completely agree. There's definitely a place for for semaglutide and related interventions for obesity, uh, but there clearly needs to be some regulation and some guidelines and rules around how it's used. And so for bariatric surgery, exactly as you say, there's a psychological um, uh, evaluation, but also uh, for most countries, there needs to be at least six months of lifestyle intervention in the build-up to bariatric surgery. One, to show that it's... A, actually needed on top of um, the lifestyle intervention, but also to make sure that the patient continues with healthy lifestyles after the procedure. And um, at the moment, we don't have that um, requirement for semaglutide. And uh, we we clearly need some boundaries or, or some rules around how it's used and some guidelines around who's eligible for it and how it's utilized. Yeah, and it, and it doesn't help that you know you have the Oscars and you have all these all these famous actors show up having lost you know fifteen kilos and and then the word getting out that that's what they took, but yeah, you know, nobody mentions everything else they did. You know, if they exercise, if they had counseling, if if uh, yeah, they put in the work and which they probably did, but no one really talks about that. They probably did, and they would have access to help ordinary people wouldn't have access to so their own nutritionist own chef and uh, their own personal trainer and so in a real life setting for the majority of people we need to see how this can fit in and still motivate people to exercise i think some of the positives from um semaglutide becoming so uh, wide or well known at least is that i think it, it has opened the door to obesity being recognized as not um, a lack due to a lack of willpower on behalf of the individual but something that is driven by uh, our environment by possibly a hormonal um, imbalance and so the way semaglutide works is actually on um, it mimics an intestinal hormone called ghrelin and um, we don't know if for people who are obese whether uh, there's an insufficiency of ghrelin or whether the ghrelin, there's a resistance to ghrelin or it's not, um, doesn't work in the right way. But clearly the semaglutide has allowed these individuals to then almost normalize their um, relationship with food in a way. And so it has, I think, led to the recognition that um, there is a hormonal um, pathway for obesity and I hope that leads to a lack of shaming of people who are overweight and obese and um, 
greater kind of acceptance that these people need help and there is help available. So I mm. think that is a, a potential positive that could come from, from this. What do you think? Mm. Um, yeah, I hope so. I mean, that's that's always been my, one of my biggest pet peeves is is the this thinking that the reason why people smoke is because it's their choice or the reason why somebody's overweight and obese is their choice or they're unhealthy and and um you know it's it's not really the case in 100 percent of 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 the individuals you know if you ask a smoker and this has been studied all over the world if you have to ask a smoker if there was a magic pill that they could take and then wake up and not crave cigarettes anymore 92 percent of them 95 percent say they would take it so they would quit if they could um and i think it's the same with a lot of these these um risk factors um that are much more complicated and not just down to somebody deciding they're gonna eat you know four pizzas or or, or whatever um it's not that simple absolutely absolutely and um i think it's it's easier for policymakers and, and governments to actually put the onus on the individual but i think this mm. this shows that um it's not a lack of willpower it's not a, a choice that people are making um outside of the context of their own environment i do want to touch on another uh related topic which is the polypill Mm. So. Ooh, one of my favorites. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you why. D- d- did I tell you this story of no about the poly pill? No, no, go ahead. No, well, it's not Have really about the poly. No, no. <laughs> um, I don't know how I would do with uh, with that mix, but um, no, it's one of my favorite because it's um, it's Valentin Fuster's like big big thing. So he's. Mm-hmm. He's the reason I got into, left clinical medicine and got into public health. Um, so for those who don't know, uh, based in in uh, New York, uh, Mount, Mount Sinai, Sinai that you mentioned, and he's regarded as the world's best cardiologist. And, and, and one of the things he said uh, that made me go into public health was he said, he said, look, I... I worked for years and years treating patients in the hospital and it took me decades to realize that I was seeing the same patient over and over again. And it made me realize that if I wanted to save lives, it had to be in the community and through policy and, you know, these different types of interventions, prevention rather than working in the hospital. And so, um, he uh he's yeah i mean you'll you'll know much more than than i do about this but he's he's one of the champions of of the poly pill um and it's such a fascinating concept and such an easy concept you think oh why didn't nobody think of this before um but yeah i mean that's 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 why i'm so fascinated with and every cardiology conference he goes to he brings the updated you know research he's done dozens and dozens of studies on the on the polypill using entire islands of like nation islands as his cohort which i find unbelievable and only he could he could do but um but yeah sorry i i uh i interrupted you no that was a great story and um uh, so i've been uh scratching my head thinking uh why uh, semaglutide has suddenly become so popular and um, some, and uh, the polypill, which has been around for maybe two decades now, has not. And brought me to this point where uh, we know that um, the vast majority of risk factors for chronic disease are silent and asymptomatic. So if you have high blood pressure, if you have high cholesterol, most people would not know until either... Um, they have a, a check, which most people don't, or they have a disease outcome, a heart attack or a stroke or an onset of something uh, that is the end disease endpoint from having that risk factor. And that the risk actually is, is cumulative over a lifetime, but actually we only tend to intervene once it's almost too late. And the polypill, which works on the same uh, on the basis that we discussed earlier where uh, there's a continu- continuum of risk for most of these risk factors and 
the vast majority of people benefit from lowering their level of blood pressure, glucose, um, clotting in the case of the polypill, lipid levels, etc. And um, and yet there's been no demand for the polypill. It hasn't taken off. And um, and the lack of demand, I think, is because of the lack of awareness from the public. And it's not something that's that's evident visibly. They, they don't know about this. It doesn't have an immediate impact on them. And for, from a pharmaceutical company perspective, these medications are um, low cost. They're not patented. And so um, there's little incentive for pharmaceutical companies to push uh, the polypill. Um, I've heard there is resistance from physicians themselves. So, mm. so oh, no. the studies, the original polypill studies showed that 80% of all heart attacks would be prevented and 90% of all strokes would be prevented. Wow. So you would think that cardiologists and stroke physicians would be falling over themselves to, to prescribe the polypill. Yeah. Um, yeah. Where it, where it has been used in real life settings outside of a trial setting, the prevention is a bit lower. I think there've been some studies. I think Valerie Puster maybe has conducted some of these himself. But um, there've been some in India that have shown maybe fifty to sixty percent prevention, which is still more than anything else we any other tool that we have in public health. Uh, and just to remind the audience that heart attacks and heart disease is the number one cause of death uh, for adults in uh, most populations around the world. And so um, currently we have no guidelines on how to use the polypill. Um, there is a resistance from physicians. There's no push from pharmaceutical companies. And I do hope that the demand we've seen for semaglutide translates also into demand for prevention of other uh, chronic diseases as well. I mean, if you have, you know, something that's, that's that well studied, like it has been, I mean, the number of papers over the years on it, um, and it has those results. I mean, it's, it's almost a no brainer, but yeah, as you say, it's, it's not, you know, there's, there's probably not a lot of profit, uh, in it. So it's, um, yeah. It's a, it's a head scratcher from a public health perspective. It would put us out of a job as well. Bob. I'm happy with that. Go, <laughs> go, in, go into uh, go into cooking. <laughs> and I think one of the areas that you and I both share, the interests that we both share, is food and the role of food in health, enjoyment of life, and just general well-being. And uh, it's another area I wonder about with um, semaglutide, if people will stop enjoying food. Uh, I mean, I, I certainly didn't um, when, I, when I was taking it. Um, I, yeah, it's, it's, uh, I never thought about that. But I, I think, well, I, I, the hunger sort of went away, like this, you know, this craving for certain foods. Every single craving went away, every type of, of food. Um, as far as I can remember, I, I still enjoyed, you know, the, the experience of, of, um, food, but, um, but yeah, it's, um, something I hadn't thought about, which is, a is a good point. And we eat, or, or our relationship with food has many other benefits as well, such as emotional well-being, mental health. Mm. So I think there's a lot more we need to study in terms of how, um, these new drugs will impact our quality of lives. Yeah, absolutely. It's just the uh, the unexplored uh, frontier of um, of uh, these new technologies. And yeah, I mean, we didn't even start to scratch the surface on things like you know AI and and the rest. But I I purposely want to leave some stuff out of of this chat so then I can I can um, convince you to to do a, a part two, if that's all right. <laughs> of course. I think things will have moved on by then anyway. <laughs> yeah, everything we'll said will have evolved. And uh, <laughs> yeah, for sure. But, um, but yeah, um, I know we've we've gone over, but I I, um, I just want to thank you for for um, giving us your, your insight. And I do want to ask you one more question. 
um, it's the last question. Is there anything in the last sort of 12 months um, or recently that you've come across that has made a, a significant impact on your mental health and, and well-being? And it can be anything, you know, it can be in a practice, um, you know, new exercise you got in, a book, um, something you saw, heard, read, that's really sort of changed your mental health and well-being? Uh, so I guess we are still uh, in the post-lockdown phase and um, reconnecting with people who I wasn't able to see during lockdown has probably made the biggest um, impact on my mental health and well-being. And being able, as I work internationally, many of those people are international and being able to travel and reconnect has uh been fantastic for myself um uh uh yourself i mean there's there's a few things i think one of the things that happened with with the pandemic was that you know as as you mentioned there was all this innovation and i think there was all these new things coming out and and traditionally i had been very uh sort of hard-headed and and um old school and and not trying anything that wasn't medicine or evidence-based, but I, I, um, yeah, I started to just put all, all, uh, bias aside and presumptions aside and just try it, try it sort of a bunch of new things that I hadn't tried before. So I started getting, you know, more into yoga and, um, and trying, you know, supplements and all these things and um and uh yeah and i started doing um things like uh, peloton uh sessions um which were were really uh really really life-changing in the sense that it was it was i found it really fun because for years i just you know done weights in the gym but i found that one of the things peloton does is it recruits trainers that have a background like in child education or or some sort of field that 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 you know they're they're naturally trained in in motivating people and i found one or two coaches that just i just really found super useful um and that really um yeah made a huge impact on on sort of my routines and motivation which i would have never done i think before the pandemic because I always thought oh yeah no, I can do it myself um, yeah <laughs> so does that again come back to that social connection you're exercising with people either virtually or uh, or real people um no actually I think it's the I think it's the opposite because it, it forces me to work out at home instead of the gym which is 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 uh being more of a, a hermit uh, but, um, but what I, I think what was different was I, I never thought, you know, I needed like somebody to, to train me or I needed any motivation. I thought, oh yeah, no, I can do it myself. But, but once I, I started to try all these new things and I thought, okay, well maybe I don't know everything about motivation and I can't do it by myself. Um, and that was the the real change, but but yeah, I do I do enjoy. It is very different when you do go into like a, a facility and there's a bunch of people. I think there's a different type of motivation, uh, that connectedness, mm-hmm. that you know tribal uh, sense that you're you're all in there for for the same thing. Um, um, but that also motivates me as well. But um, yeah, I think it was just being stubborn and, and thinking before the pandemic that, yeah, I, I know better and, and uh, realizing that wasn't the case. <laughs> yeah, I think we're all, we're too evidence-based maybe sometimes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, um, yeah, on that note, uh, speaking on, on social connections and, and food, we'll, we'll have to catch up uh, soon um, and put our put our uh our uh, money where our mouth is and uh find some some healthy healthy yeah food to, you're now to chat over. you're now officially a cordon bleu chef so 
I hope <laughs> I hope that incorporates some plant-based options. <laughs> you can cook something for yeah. me. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely, without a doubt. Um, well, thanks again. That's that's been super fun and and great. And um, yeah, hope we can do it again. Yeah, definitely. And uh, love to hear which supplements you take as well. We should compare notes actually. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll make a list for the next one. <laughs> great. Hey, thanks for listening, folks. If you enjoyed that, please hit subscribe, like, and share. See you next time.